the core of it, we are all connected by being human beings, right? We are at the core. We have these basic human needs of just being seen, being respected, being valued, being heard. And I think that there's also this facade that if you're in this leadership role, you should be coming in and being very stern and very direct and, you know, and, and making sure that people know that who's in charge. Um, and I, I'm, and maybe it's just because of my background, right, from being a Latina in this case, um, I think it's a balance of both. It's, it's a balance of share your story so that folks know that you are human, that you, they can relate to you. Um, and I think through storytelling, you actually start to build bridges around how people can understand one another. And through those storytelling, you actually know that there's actually more things in common than not. It has been well established that companies with more ethnic, cultural, and gender diversity are more innovative and profitable than those without. Being intentional about diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy simply makes good business sense. But how do you do that? What strategies actually work? This podcast tells the stories of visionaries who are actually changing the diversity landscape of tech and explores the strategies they're using to become more diverse by design. This is Nia Darville, your host, and you're listening to the Diverse by Design podcast. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Maria Medrano. Maria is the Senior Director of Diversity Strategy, Narrative, and Partnerships at Google. There, she's responsible for setting a global diversity strategy that includes partnerships, policy, and practices with equitable outcomes. With more than 20 years of experience, Maria is a balanced blend of strategist and community advocate, holding roles in inclusion and community, HR, finance, operations, and strategic sales. In her previous role as Visa's Chief Diversity Officer, Maria was responsible for establishing the inclusion and diversity vision and mission, and for supporting the company's promise of universal acceptance for everyone, everywhere. Maria is a first-generation American of Mexican descent and the first in her family to earn a college degree. Through her work, Maria has earned several important accolades, including Top 100 Under 40 Diversity MBA, Silicon Valley 40 Under 40, and YWCA Tribute to Women Emerging Leader Award. She continues to advise and serve on multiple nonprofit boards dedicated to improving the education of students in disadvantaged communities. Thank you for being with us today, Maria. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here with you. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. Oh, I have a feeling it's going to be a good one. (laughs) So first, tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your story? Absolutely. So um, Maria Medrano or Maria Medrano, for those of you that are bilingual like I am, uh, I was born in a small town called San Francisco, California. And I say small town because when I was growing up there, it felt like a very small town. But it was actually uh, probably the biggest opportunity I was given in this lifetime was to be born in the beautiful city of San Francisco. Um, I was born and raised in the Mission District. Um, And that's a very important piece that I like to share when I talk about my story, because I was born to teenage parents um, in the time of both my dad immigrating to the United States from Mexico. um, And my mom, although not immigrating, she was actually um, an orphan. Um, in that her parents both died at a very, very young age. And so she spent her time between Mexico and the United States um, and never really had a, um, an opportunity to feel like she had that support. And so I share that piece of it because it'll give you an understanding as to 
why family is so important to me and how they've been a pillar to my background. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you can think about going back to the early 80s, being a young child of two immigrant parents, two very young parents, um, two parents that all they knew was how to love each other and how to love me, um, giving me the love that I needed to say that I could be and do whatever I wanted to in this lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. And so being born in the city was a gift that I say is a gift that kept on giving because I was in a big city, even though with very, very humble beginnings. Um, and I'm not shy to say that they were so humble that I, I lived um, and knew about the community lines, right? I looked forward to the weekly lines to go get food for the family. Um, mm-hmm. I had fun sitting in the social welfare office waiting for our food stamps. Um, I loved having conversations with the older women in the social services office about just life in general. Um, and because of that, I love to listen to stories of just what had been, what has occurred, and what could be possible, even in the small microcosm of it being San Francisco, because it allowed me to be curious in every which way that I turn. Um, and so the one consistency that I had in my lifetime was the value of school um, and making sure that school was prioritized. As I mentioned, my mom was here in the United States. So she did graduate from high school, but I was a year and a half, almost two years old by the time she graduated from high school. So I was in the school system with her. And her biggest dream for me was for me to just finish school, finish school with no babies, finish school with an ability to be able to buy a car because at this moment we didn't even have a car. Like I know what it means to not have a car, to be dependent on public transportation. That's all I knew for the first 15 years of my life. Um, and I knew what it meant to be dependent on others when you didn't have anything. And so those were the stories that were reinforced by mom around know who you are, work hard to have your own money. Don't be dependent on anyone. And you can do that by going to school. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else to do but just go to school. So Mm -hmm. I was so focused from the very, very beginning about the importance of school. And the interesting thing is that one of my earliest memories that I have was my mom walking me to our elementary school and her telling me, you're going to have to take a test. And this test is going to test where you would be starting from a school perspective. And again, because I knew that school was so important, I was so anxious and so excited, but also so determined about I'm going to go and I'm going to nail this test. And again, I was four mm-hmm. years old. This was like the, the summer before turning five to go into <laughs> elementary school and kindergarten. And I remember the test was connecting the dots, connecting one to 10 and being able to tell the teacher what I had connected and what it was. And it happened to be a duck. It was like one to 10, a duck. And then I got to color it. And I remember walking out of that room feeling so accomplished and seeing the pride in my mom's face of like, oh my gosh, you did it. But at that moment, it clicked where my goal in my life was just to make my mom proud. And ended that making her proud was my mm. going to school. So the rest is history mm. in regards to me every single day getting up, going to school. I, I was that student that was grateful about being able to be in school because the other side of it, my dad played a very critical role in understanding the being able to appreciate the fact that I could go to school because he was only able to go to school until the third grade in Mexico. So mm. he would say education is so important but don't take it for granted. So when I went to school, kindergarten first, all the way through fifth and elementary years, it was with that gratitude. There mm-hmm. to learn, but also there to serve. And so people would say, my cousins and my brothers would say, you're a teacher's pet. I'm like, I'm not a teacher's pet, but I love to help my teachers because through that, I also got to learn. And I'd like to also have being conversations with older people. And I, because of my personal experience of the social, the social bearings that I've been a part of, but I've always appreciate being in dialogue with people. 
Um, and so all of those pieces is what allowed me to say, when I grow up, I'm going to be a teacher because they were my heroes. They were the folks that saw things in me that I didn't see. They saw things in my parents that my parents didn't see for themselves. Because again, my parents were so young. And so many of my teachers would always have conversations about how are your mom and dad doing? You know, how is your family doing? And I had many teachers that would actually go out of their way to create extra work in their homes to give my parents work. And now that I look back, it's to ensure that they could provide for myself and my brother because I have a mm-hmm. brother that was born a year and a half after I was. Wow. So those are the things that I carry with me. I mean, as I went into middle school and high school, it was no different. By the time I was in high school, I was so determined I was going to be a teacher. I was enrolled in the teacher cadet program that gratefully it ended up being that I was duly enrolled at the university, Sonoma State University, and also at the, at the high school. I got stipends um, where I was able to actually go into the classroom during my school year. And then the summer months actually have the opportunity to learn about what we were doing in the summer months. So I was a teacher assistant in the summer months. I look back again, it was more my aptitude, my desire to be there. It, there were just a willingness to open up their doors and for me to get proximate to what it meant for teacher planning, what it meant to engage with students, what it meant to have a network of teachers. And so that was my goal. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. And I went off to Sonoma State by sheer accident, by the fact that I was dually enrolled in the high school. I remember they sat me down to actually help me fill out my application because I didn't know that even applying to other universities was an option. It was just the school that I was in. It just didn't give me that liberty. Um, and I had the opportunity to do that, that I was accepted um, at the Sonoma State University because of the 4.0 I had, because I had gone two semesters on there at the university. And I got the invitation to start college two weeks before the university started through what they call summer bridge programs through the EOP program. And so... For those that are listening, again, though, though I share this because again, my beginnings are very humble and I, and I, and I love to talk about these because these are the programs that we should continue to invest in because it gives young children, young people like I was the opportunity to be seen and the opportunity to just participate and the rest will take care of itself. Hmm. And so when I did start on my college journey, I was very eager. Like I said, very much, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a teacher. But that's where I felt the first time the racism. I can tell you because I was born in San Francisco. It's such a great, rich, diverse setting. Um, you know, my neighbors were, you know, Mexican descent, Black descent, Asian descent. And when I say Asian, I mean Hmong, Vietnamese, Chinese. I mean, we, we knew the differences. I celebrated every aspect. I did Chinese New Year. I, you know, we celebrated Hanukkah, you know, Kwanzaa. You know, we talk about every dimension, St. Patrick's Day all of those different pieces. So for me, it was, everyone was like that. I'm like, oh, this is great. Now I'm going to college because I can tell you being in high school and even in middle school, my biggest desire was to be in college because in my mind, being in college, I was going to be with people that wanted to learn because in middle school and high school, not many wanted to learn or there for other things, fashion or whatever it could be. And so in Mm -hmm. my mind, I'm like, I just got to get through this. I got to put in my time so I can get to the big pride, which is going to college. I didn't expect, and I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't have anybody to prepare me for the big culture shift that I was going to be feeling going Mm -hmm. to college. Um, And it was very real. In my classrooms, um, you know, I was often the only one that looked like me. I definitely was the only one that was bilingual in the sense of bicultural and meaning that it was equally as important for me to be seen, but also important for my, for my people and my peers to be seen. 
Um, and so every lecture class usually ended up with some sort of debate um, because there were usually people in the class, well, your people are the ones that use all the welfare and your people are the ones that are incarcerated. And there would be these very difficult assumptions um, and I say daggers that would be sent over that I honestly, now that I think back, was sent to demotivate me. But they met me because I have a lot of grit and I tell people, I'm like, I don't give up easily. But if anything, it gave me a reason to be like, no, this is why I need to be in these classrooms. This is why I need to be here in schools. Um, and I had a couple of teachers that would actually come console me. I remember they would come after me and say, Maria, we're proud of you. Like, this is why you need to come to class. Don't stand, don't sit down, keep on keeping. Mm. And the, again, teachers, professors, like the biggest motivators for me. I honestly would have continued in the teaching realm, but my financial reality was that I had to work the entire time that I went to school. So the entire mm. time, my four or five years of undergraduate, I worked an eight to five job in the daytime. And then I worked, I went to school five to 10 p.m. Monday to Friday. It was just my reality. It just, I didn't have... My parents couldn't afford to do so. The financial aid system was not, you know, as easily understandable to even know that was even an option. And yes, I still am paying for school loans today. I won't be ashamed. I'm still paying for school loans because I had to take loans to just ensure that I kept myself going through school. Um, and what I found was a lot of the classes that I needed to take to become that teacher were in the daytime. It was traditional curriculum, eight to three, eight to four with internships. And I thought, there's just no way I can't do that. I thought, what options do I have to be able to stay in school and take the classes that I need to take? To For me, my pride was just being at the university. I, I really didn't even know that there had to be a, a pathway or a plan. Like that was just what I needed to do. Um, and so I started taking a few classes that were available in the evening. And those were more of the business classes, right? Like a speech or a philosophy. There'd you know, be a math class here and there, an English class. And before I knew it, I started realizing, oh, wow, I'm actually now on the track of the business. And so um, when I got that realization two years in, I realized that Sonoma State was not going to give me the opportunity to get that work that I needed. It's a very small town, very quaint. Um, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was graduating from Sonoma State and actually heading to San Jose State for his master's program. And he said, you know, I'm going to San Jose come check out the university here. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe I'll do that. During the time the CSUs had like a visitors program where you could apply to be a visitor on their campus, but still registered at your home university. And so what I did, and this is so like how I look at it, think of it now, it's like January, 2000, right? The new millennium, like I applied that November for acceptance in January. Um, and that fall I moved to San Jose. And again, I was still Cinema State students. So I was getting the units there, but I was taking my coursework there, full business focus. They have one of the most amazing business programs there, not knowing at the time, right? I went there. I took more business courses. I got my job eight to five, started off as a receptionist at a tech company. So that was my entree into tech. Um, I was super eager, as you can just tell, just the story that I went above and beyond and just being a receptionist, but really getting to understand the business and the business model. What I didn't know at the time was that where I was, where I sat to be a receptionist was for a company called Diamond that created the first MP3 players, the real players, wow. iPod. Um, and so they introduced me to online auctioning before eBay was a thing, um, wow. talked about technology, talked about, um, 
manufacturing and the chips and tariffs and how we built things in China and built things in Mexico and shipped them over. And so I would see all these conversations happen that I would ask questions and they would ask me to hold certain briefs and I would read them. I would ask, can I read this? Sure. So I would read them to understand the business model. And before I knew it, I was asked to actually take on a temporary role for managing the online um, tech platform for these auctions. And so that was really the entree point into, for me, from a technology perspective and the shift from, you know, becoming a teacher into going into the tech industry. I obviously, I finished my business degree, got my bachelor's degree in business um, and continued in my role in technology. The one thing that I will share as well, because I think this is really important, is that I had this focus. I'm like, wow, this is technology. I'm going to be here. And I had my first opportunity to step into a manager role. And it was not with the tech industry. It was actually with a, I would call like a blue collar staffing organization. Their, the company name was Labor Connection. They don't exist any longer, but they were there to place workers for large events, for disasters, any, any kind of blue collar worker. Think about like a manpower. They focus that for actual everyday work. And employees, their employees would come in, we pay them daily. And that was the first time I was given an opportunity to lead a team of credit managers that focused on collecting money. So that's my finance background came into play. Because what I didn't share in this and what I'm sharing here is that I started working at the age of 11, doing bookkeeping, doing a lot of back office work with my mom, working in a restaurant. So cash management and money, I'm very, always very comfortable with numbers and money. So I pulled that forward and did that role um, in that kind of credit management role. I was 21 at the time. The people that I was managing were well over 30, 40 years old. The teams were dispersed across states and across counties here in California. So it was the first time I had the opportunity to travel, manage, you know, afar, manage directly, um, and also have an opportunity to lay out strategy. It, it was like that turning point of like going into management. Did I know what I was doing? Heck no, I didn't know what I was doing, but this is what we do, right? Like you just figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I grew so much in those two years. And during those two years is when I realized that I wanted to go back to school. Like There has to be more. It can't just be the undergraduate piece. There mm-hmm. has to be more. And that's when um, I went back to get my master's degree in organizational development. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why I share that piece is because I had a fear of leaving the tech industry and going into this management role. And I remember calling one of my mentors and asking, what do I do? I don't want to leave the tech industry, but I'm being given this amazing opportunity to manage a team, a team that has people outside of the office and in the office. And I remember she's telling me, you know, technology is not the end all. She goes, go gain the experience that you can't gain in technology. And then when you're ready, I'm sure technology will want you right back. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what happened. Because exactly what happened. I was there for three years grew, learned so much that I then went to work for an elevator switch company where it was more the semiconductor, but the technology piece. Um, and, and that's just been my thing. It's like any which way it's been to kind of grow that skill set because I felt within myself that it, I could do it and I wanted to do it. I just needed someone to show me um, and mm-hmm. to mentor me and to give me some time. That's been the biggest piece. And I find myself being a life learner. And if I think about where I am right now in my role, I am a teacher in some cases, right? I'm, I'm called to be an influencer. I'm called to manage a team. I'm, I'm called to manage others and to also share stories. And so through that piece, I think that 
I have gotten my dream of becoming a teacher, but it's not in the sense of being in the classroom. It's in what I do in the work that I lead and the ways I can step out of it to drive impact and, and influence others through my story. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit and really capitalize on the storytelling you just mentioned. So how can managers use the power of storytelling to learn both about their employee superpowers and the challenges stemming from their employees' unique backgrounds? It's a great question. I think that there's lots of folks that underestimate the story of being able to share who you are. At the core of it, we are all connected of being human beings, right? We are at the core. We have these basic human needs of just being seen, being respected, being valued, being heard. And I think that there's also this facade that if you're in this leadership role, you should be coming in and being very stern and very direct and, you know, and, and making sure that people know that who's in charge. Um, and I, I'm, and maybe it's just because of my background, right. From being a Latina in this case, um, I think it's a balance of both. It's, it's a balance of share your story. So that folks know that you are human, that you, they can relate to you. Um, and I think through storytelling, you actually start to build bridges around how people can understand one another. And through those storytelling, you actually know that there's actually more things in common than not. They just may look mm-hmm. a little different and they may be experienced in different situations, but the experiences that people feel are things that do connect us. Um, and so for me, it's been more so on how do you do more of that and how do you role model it? How do you make it so that people are comfortable? And that's the beauty of diversity. That's really the beauty about diversity is that you bring diverse people together, diverse skills, diverse thoughts, diverse experiences, that natural learnings happen when people are working together. I can tell you, I sit back and I'm in awe when I, when I connect with my peers and, you know, my boss and just like, wow, we're all so different. But at the same time, we're all here because we have vested interests and we're connected on what we want to accomplish together. But we all bring a different skill set and we all bring a different way of thinking things and we all process things differently. And so I think that it's, it requires an opportunity for leadership to accept the fact that the storytelling can unleash much more than just people connecting, but it can unleash the way people think and the way people work and the way teams come together. And I think in the world that we're living right now with the COVID pandemic, people feel so much more on islands. They're so removed because we're all in different places that the storytelling can actually connect us more. And I'm starting to see that being more, more skill sets, more traits, more capabilities, that it's a value add. And it's a way in which you kind of bring in forgive the word, right? But being more empathetic, right? Like Mm -hmm. just empathetic leaders that come across as knowing what's needed, but don't be, don't be excused or thinking that, oh, they're just really nice because it's Mm. not the niceness because the niceness talks, it's talked about like it's, it's a weak point or it's not something, but it's more of like, how do you meet people where they are? How do you come in firm? How do you come in what's expected so that there is a respectable understanding of what's needed? but in a way that allows people to feel that they can belong in an organization um, and mm-hmm. on a team. Those are yeah. the things it's, it's just, it's a balance. We don't have it perfectly squared off, right? There's still so much more to be done there. But I think as we start to expand how we start to bring people into our work, how we look at people that we ask to join our organization, people start to think about how we find that balance. So there's an understanding um, and a way to keep it going forward. Mm. How do you balance or how can you use storytelling as a bridge for building cultural competence? Storytelling can be used as a bridge by um, ensuring that they're genuine stories. So 
So I think just mm-hmm. the understanding of, you know, I know from my perspective, me being able to share a little bit about me gives a view into others on the fact that who they've read about or what they've read about a particular situation is not like someone else, that it's actually someone they care about or it's someone that they work with. Um, and I think mm-hmm. through storytelling and people feeling safe enough to share what their true story is allows for that because there has to be safety, right? There has to be this core part of it. In some cases, it's someone feeling safe enough to share with someone so they don't, so that, that person doesn't feel that that information is going to be used against them. In other cases, it's people, leaders. I can use me as an example, feeling confident enough that I'm at that point in my career. I'm getting older and older that I'm like, I'm, I don't have anything to be afraid of any longer. Like I'm mm. okay being who I am and sharing who I am and being able to ensure that what I want to you know, provide in an organization, what I want to contribute is what the organization needs. Um, and if it's not, that's okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's okay. And I think that's the biggest opportunity that we have with the storytelling is to allow for that conversation. So it's, it's two way. One part is the listening. The other part is the hearing. Um, it's what, you know, I talk about often with my own boss, right? And I, and I love this about her. We talk about we're leaders and learners in this work, right? So many times we lead, but in many, many times we should also be learners. And that mm-hmm. goes back to the storytelling. Like you have that opportunity to make it very, very humanistic. So it's not happen chance or it's not hypothetical, but it's mm-hmm. this is very real. And this is what I've experienced. This is what's happened. And this is why what I'm sharing is important so that it allows mm-hmm. the person on the receiving end to be like, wow, I had no clue. And then it personalizes it for them. So there can allow there to be that, that shorter, shorter bridge. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Maria. This has been such a rich conversation. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us, talking to me and our listeners out there. Do you have any final words for them? I think the biggest thing I'll just walk away and just sharing with everyone is um, to really look deep inside and just realize what their superpowers are. We all have them. We all are here for a purpose. What is your purpose? And how can you use your purpose to inspire others? Thank you for joining us as we discuss the power of storytelling and management with Maria Matrano from Google. Diverse by Design is powered by Perscolis and the IT Senior Management Forum. To learn more about how we can help your organization become more diverse by design, visit our website at diversebydesign.org. Before we let you go, we want to thank our sponsors, Tech Systems, JPMorgan Chase, Google, Chubb, and Comcast NBC Universal for their support. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any insights about how you can make your organization diverse by design. Until next time.